I'm Captain Kirk. Ladies and gentlemen, may I present the winners of the 74th Annual Hunger Games. I'm the doctor, by the way. What's your name? Rose. Nice to meet you, Rose. Run for your life. My name is Optimus Prime. I am the Futurist of War. Resistance is futile. Straight flows from the force, but beware of the dark side. Oh. Oh. Iron Man, that's kind of catchy. It's got a nice ring to it. I mean, it's not technically accurate. It's a gold titanium alloy. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. This is a reach call. What's happening, everybody? This is Mark Daniels from the Great Pacific Northwest, and you are listening to Treks in Sci-Fi. This is episode 743 for Sunday, September 22nd, 2019. I'm back this week with another classic science fiction movie. Today's movie is probably one of the worst 1950s science fiction movies ever made. It's The Giant Claw, starring Jeff Morrow, Mara Corday, and my personal favorite, Morris Ankrum. Before I get into today's podcast, I want to thank Rico for giving me this opportunity to share with all of you another classic science fiction movie. I also want to thank everyone who took the time to listen to me today. I hope you enjoy it. With that said, I'm going to play the trailer to The Giant Claw. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the rest of the podcast. I'll be back after the trailer with some movie information, and then we'll get into today's movie. It's coming after me. Mitch. That bird is extraterrestrial. Comes from outer space. From some godforsaken antimatter galaxy millions and millions of light years from the earth atomic hydrogen weapons capable of wiping cities countries off the face of the earth are completely ineffective against this creature from the skies Attacking the United Nations building. 
guards after us. Chasing us. How are you doing? For God's sake, hurry, man. It's catching up with us fast. The Giant Claw is a 1957 American science fiction movie directed by Fred F. Sears and produced by Sam Katzman. The screenplay was written by Samuel Newman and Paul Ganglion. It stars Jeff Morrow and Mari Cordy and Morris Ankrum. It was released in June of 1957 and has a running time of 75 minutes. And here's the cast, starting at the top. Jeff Morrow as Mitch McAfee. Mara Cordy as Sally Caldwell. Morris Ankrum as Lieutenant General Edward Consadin. Louis D. Morell as Pierre Bouchard. Edgar Barrier as Dr. Carol Neumann. Robert Shane as General Van Buzzkirk. Riel Shane as Pete, the dead pilot. Clark Hawat as Major Bergen. And Morgan Jones as the radar officer. And that's all I have for movie information. Now let's get into today's movie. Today's movie starts at a radar station in the Arctic. Our main character is Mitch McAfee. He's an electronics engineer and he is flying a jet to help calibrate a new radar installation when he sees a UFO. Well? Well what? Well, let's not play games, Major. Did you men find it? Mr. McAfee, if you were in uniform, I'd have you under arrest and facing general court-martial charges. Unfortunately, you're a civilian, and I can't touch you. What are you talking about? But I about? can send a report in on you, and I will. By the time I get through with you, Mr. Electronics Engineer, you'll be lucky if they let you test batteries for flashlights. Look, Major Bergen, I was flying a final calibration flight. I spotted a UFO, I reported it. Does that make me a criminal, a traitor to my country, or some kind of a psychopath? McAfee, you're an electronics man, an expert on radar. Sure, that's what they pay me for. If there was something in the air, something flying, that you could see, would radar pick it up? Well, yes, Would radar they... pick it up, yes or no? Yes. There were three radars on you every minute you were in the air, and not one of them, not one, saw anything but you. Look, and Major... you were told this, you knew it. Nevertheless, you persisted with your little joke. Easy now, Bergen. You continued to yell wolf until somebody pushed the panic button and scrambled a flight of interceptors. Great. Great, so your buzz boys flew around, they couldn't find anything, so now you're mad and want me to pay for the fuel they burned up or the time they wasted or something else real smart. The flight was scrambled and dispersed to cover as wide an area as possible. And thanks to your not-so-funny false alarm, Mr. McAfee, one of those planes didn't come back. Plane and pilot both are missing. Major Bergen. What? Yes. Yeah, yes. Call out the standby crews. You better reshuffle your duty rosters. There'll be plenty of sweat on this one. Look, Major, I'm sorry about the pilot, but... That was no false alarm. Oh, come me. off it, Mitch. You've done enough harm with your flying battleship. Just, just let just it... Just a moment, Miss Caldwell. That call. 
A Transpolar Airlines plane is reported overdue and missing. Oh, no. 60 passengers and a full crew aboard. Got a distress call from the pilot, and nothing. No more contact. Engine trouble? No. The pilot yelled something about a... a UFO. And the radio went dead. And our radars? Nothing. Nothing but the transpolar plane, alone in the sky. While flying back to Washington, Mitch and Sally's plane is attacked by the UFO and forced to crash. Mitch and Sally survive the crash and are helped by a French-Canadian farmer named Pierre Boussard. Later that night, Pierre sees something that frightens him. Over here. Easy, Pierre. Easy. You're safe. You're in the house. Cacagna. It was the Cacagna. I saw her. <laughs> What's a Cacagna, Pierre? Come on, tell us about it. It's just a devil in the storm. The face of the wolf and the body of the woman. With wings. Bigger than I can tell. You probably saw an eagle, Pierre. No, no. It was La Cacagna. La Cacagna. Oh, I remember. Now I read it somewhere. It's a superstition, a, a legend that the French-Canadians started and came across the border with. Yeah, it vaguely rings a small bell with me, too. It was probably just the lightning in the storm, Pierre. You just imagined the whole no, thing. No, no, I saw La Cacagna. Here, take another swallow of this. Pierre. He thinks he saw something weird in the sky. I saw her. I saw La Cacagne. He can't get it out of his head. Yeah, I know. I live up this way myself. There's a lot of the old folks around here believe that yarn. But this is the first time I ever heard anybody claim he really saw the old witch. You come to take us to the airport? Yeah, car outside. Oh, I hate to leave him like this. Now, don't worry, ma'am. Joe here will stay with him. We'd better hurry. They're holding that plane for you. Come on, Sally. They're holding a plane for us. We'd better get with it. We haven't even thanked him. I'm afraid the social amenities won't mean very much to a man in Pierre's condition. He's right, ma'am. You'd never get through the way he's scared stiff right now. Scared? So he thought he saw a big bird. Why should that paralyze him so with fright? Didn't he tell you? Tell us what? The legend. According to the story they tell, if you see this big bird... It's a sign that you're going to die real soon. <laughs> that plane's waiting. We better go. Okay, Sergeant. So Mitch and Sally get on another airplane and fly back to Washington, D.C. While Mitch is trying to put the move on Sally, he discovers a pattern to the disappearance of all the airplanes. The case you take is better than you give. A many-faceted creature, this Mr. McAfee. First engineer and pilot, and now lover and poet. Oh, the line of poetry was from Shakespeare. 
I know, but where did that impulse come from? Left field, maybe. I like baseball. Or maybe just sitting next to a pretty girl. That's enough in itself sometimes. Even sitting next to Mademoiselle Mathematician? Or should we stick to the baseball reference? There are figures and there are figures. Inescapable logic. Corny, but true. You almost overwhelm me. Almost? Mm-hmm. Well, let's finish the job. Look at that moon. Speaking of uh, baseball and left field, somebody warned me that you make up your own rules. Whoever said that's no friend of mine. But he's a friend of mine. Sabotage. Oh, much too dramatic. Let's stick to baseball and say instead, out, trying to steal second. Back to the bush leagues, finished. A quitter, I knew it. No fight, no spirit. Of course, the umpire could always reverse a decision. No, no shortcuts. Must follow the pattern. You see, first the minor leagues and then the major leagues. I stick to the rules, Mitch. Sorry about that. Why be sorry? You can always... What's the matter? Pattern, I need one of your maps. The orthographic projection, the pull to equator. Give it to me, will you? Sure. I think I have it here somewhere. Ah. Here it is. What's that? Open your map. Now, where I sighted the UFO, where the search plane disappeared, the transpolar airliner, our plane at Pierre's, and finally, the Navy patrol plane. Well, you were muttering about a pattern. Well, see it? Well, no. No straight line, no curve, nothing. Wait. A pattern. A perfect pattern in time and distance. Each incident, each cross, later than the one before, each one further out in the spiral from the center. You mean something, something in the air flew a pattern like that? Yeah. Something I saw. Something that flew over and passed me in the air. Well, it would have to be traveling at incredible speed to cover all the distance and the time involved. Yeah, it would. Something that seemingly destroyed four planes and barely missed you the first time. Yes. Something like your flying battleship? Okay, forget the whole thing. Oh, well now, Mitch, be reasonable. Why that pattern just to knock down a few scattered planes? And what? A meteorite? Impossible. A guided missile? Well, that would stop with the first plane it hit. And who would launch it, and for what reason? No, Mitch. Coincidence, yes, but pattern, no. Here's your map. Well, you are a child. 
niche think. If there was anything flying this kind of a pattern, why, it would be tracked by dozens of different radars. And none of them spotted a thing, so what? Well, maybe it was Pierre's Cacarnier with a head of a wolf and a body of a woman with wings as big as I can tell. There's no need to be sarcastic. Look, would you two mind being quiet so the rest of us can sleep? Thank you. Sorry. Maybe I was being childish. Mitch McAfee, flying Sherlock Holmes. I think you did make better sense with your poetry than you did with your detective deductions. I know another poem. Oh? Be plain in dress and sober in your diet. In short, my dearie, Kiss me and be quiet. Mitch and Sally finally make it to Washington. Mitch explains his theories to Generals Considine and Buzzkirk. But Sally has an idea that maybe one of the high-altitude balloons may have taken a picture of the UFO. My sighting, the search plane, the transpolar airliner, our plane at Pierre's, and the Navy patrol plane. Too much, and it fits too well to be just coincidence. There have been two more since the Navy plane. Private plane here last night. The CAB plane with four passengers and a pilot here. All following your theoretical patterns, smack dab on the nose. No radar tracks, I suppose. As usual, since you started this crazy nightmare, nothing. Except about the planes. Did the pilots report anything? Not a word from the pilot of the private plane, but the CAB pilot reported a UFO. Did he say what it was? Yes. A bird. A bird as big as a battleship circled and attacked the plane. <laughs> Believe me, Mr. McAfee, this is no joke. Oh, no. That plane was completely destroyed, and all five men on the board seem to have completely disappeared from the face of the earth. Now, you're an electronics expert. Could there have been anything that big up in the sky and not be picked up by radar? Impossible. But I saw it myself. Yes. Three men reported they saw something. And two of them are now dead. Well, that makes me chief cook and bottle washer in a one-man bird watcher society. Mr. McAfee, this is vitally important. Did you get a good look at it? No, it was just a blur as it went past. Oh, I wish I'd had a camera with me. Camera? General Buzzkirk, before I went out on this radar assignment with Mitch, I was doing Earth curvature calibration work. Well, how does that help us on this? Well, we use film strips, photographed from inside test rockets and from fixed cameras and observation balloons. Sally, maybe you've got it. If those balloons are still up, there's a bare possibility they photographed this thing, whatever it is. General Edward Considine, Pentagon. Priority, fast. Well, one of the high-altitude balloons does take a picture of the UFO, and it's a giant bird. There's some sort of bird, all right. There's no question of that. Miss Caldwell, is it possible that this, um, 
This bird has been flying in blind spot areas that our radar can't pick up. No, sir, I checked carefully. At least ten different radar sites should have tracked it. Mr. McAfee, could speed or altitude affect the ability of our radar to pick it up? No. There's no scientific or any other kind of reason in the world why our radars don't track it. They just don't. Period. And what you are saying in essence is that black is white and two and two make six. Look, General, I didn't invent this flying nightmare. I just saw it and reported it. The General understands, Mr. McAfee. He's not blaming you for anything. Relax, man. Relax? When do we stop relaxing and start doing something? Good sense isn't confined exclusively to civilians, Mr. McAfee. We know how to take care of ourselves and the country. Easy, Van, easy. Take it easy. There's a general air alert on this very minute, son. Hundreds of planes from every command are combing the skies, searching for this overgrown buzzard. We'll find it all right, never fear. And when we do, General, then what? Yes? Good. Where? Okay, this is official now. Pass him the word to shoot it down. No questions, no games, no stalling. Just shoot it down. Yes. Give me a tape on all air-to-ground and air-to-air -air channels and pipe it through a hotline to me here. One of our squadrons just spotted it. I've ordered them to attack and shoot it down. Our planes are armed with cannon, machine gun, and rockets. This should be the end of the big bird who was there but wasn't. You'll be able to hear it as it happens. General Considine orders his jets to shoot the big bird down, but the giant bird is indestructible and destroys all of the jets. Those pilots. We'll find it all right, never fear. The end of the big bird. You're right, Miss Caldwell, when we find it, what then? Phase two off standby. Operational. Notify the Joint Chiefs. Yes, sir. It doesn't make sense. It's just a bird. A big bird. Guns, cannons, rockets. It's just a bird. Sure, just a bird. Ten million dollars worth of radar can't track it. Enough firepower to wipe out a regiment can't even slow it down. Sure, it's just a bird. What are we going to do? Just sit around here and weep? Oh, climb off our We're not crying, McAfee. And we're not running away. But it's hard to come up with answers when you don't even know what the question is. Being flipped doesn't help any. I'm not criticizing either of you. Or the Air Force, or those guys who just died trying to shoot that thing down. I'm not being flipped, and I'm not wisecracking. I'm just scared. We all are, I guess. So let's face that and then try and do something about that bird. Any suggestions, McAfee? Sure. Electronic spitballs. Van. Close, General, close. Only not electronic spitballs. Atomic spitballs. Yes? Phase two operational. All units alerted and ready. Good. Call for you, Dr. Carol Neumann at the research lab. Now take it on two. This is General Considine, Dr. Neumann. Say that again. Good, good. You stay where you are. I'll be right over. Research lab's been kept right up to date. They've been working on the wreckage of that CAB plane and the plane that you two cracked up in. Find anything new, Ed? 
They think they've figured out what that bird is and where it came from. About those atomic spitballs, an hour before your plane landed in Washington, I ordered guided missiles with atomic warheads made ready for every launching site in the country where the fallout pattern makes it safe to explode them. The order you heard me give to make phase two operational was an order to fire those missiles the moment that bird is spotted anywhere. General, I'm sorry, I guess I... Don't apologize, son. I admire your spunk, and you keep climbing on our backs whenever we've messed up any of the detail. Ma'am? Sorry, Mac. I guess we're all trying to do our best. Uh, you two better come along. You're up your ears in this thing anyway. Come on, let's go. Dr. Carol Neumann has found the origin of the giant bird, and guess what? It's from outer space. The atom is the basic building block of all matter. And the atom this model represents is like every atom as we know it. The nucleus is positive, the electrons are all negative. In this respect, it has been maintained that all atoms are alike, but this is wrong, all wrong. According to the law of electrodynamics, all nature is symmetrical. It is in balance, and if there is matter, then there must also be antimatter, a symmetrical mirror image. Now here we have a positive nucleus, negative electrons. In the reverse, we must obviously have a negative nucleus with positive electrons. Science has proved that this is so. Not in this Earth, nor in this solar system, but somewhere in the universe, there are stars, planets, whole galaxies made up of antimatter. What do you mean to say, Doctor, that this, this bird is made of antimatter, that it's reversed, uh, inside out, a mirror image, as you call it? Just a minute, General. Uh, doctor, it's been proven that antimatter exists, but it's also been proven that whenever it comes in contact with ordinary matter, they annihilate one another. Blow up. Now, why didn't the bird explode when it was hit or when it touched something? Uh, you are both right and wrong. The bird itself is not antimatter. But the bird unquestionably radiates some sort of force, an energy screen, some invisible barrier. And that energy screen is antimatter. Guns, cannons, rockets. No wonder nothing touched it. Stuff hit the antimatter screen and blew up before it could get close. Mitch, this explains the failure of the radar. Yeah. No reflecting surface. The radar waves wouldn't bounce off. They'd slide around. So with no echo, no tracks. Dr. Norman, a uh, couple of questions. All this isn't just guesswork on your part. No, it is not guesswork, General. Evidently, this bird is able to open that antimatter screen to use its beak, its claws, its wings as destructive weapons. Now, here is part of the wreckage. Examination by a staff of scientists has told us the whole incredible story. It has been checked and double-checked. Is there anything else, General? Yes, Doctor. Where did this bird come from? Here is a piece of feather from the bird found in the wreckage. At least we call it a feather. We don't know what it is 
only what it looks like. It has defied chemical analysis, the electroscope, every conceivable test. It contains no substance known on the earth today, no element recognizable by man. Finding that out was expensive. How so? We had several of these feathers. This is the only piece left. As a last resort, we tried testing them in electronic analyzers. Look. That bird is extraterrestrial. Comes from outer space. From some godforsaken antimatter galaxy, millions and millions of light years from the Earth. No other explanation is possible. Our van will fly you two back to New York. I would appreciate it if you'd hold yourselves in readiness and of course you understand that everything that you have seen and heard is classified. My command is ready, Ed, and waiting at the end of a hotline. Just phone. <laughs> Just a phone, Van? Well, I'll need help. All the help I can get. We all will. The only trouble is that the last time I talked to a chaplain, there wasn't any telephone line to the one and only place where we can get the kind of help that we need. General Considine, this is an emergency. Get me the Secretary of Defense. Martial laws declared and everyone is ordered inside. Sally begins to wonder why the giant bird has come to Earth. She believes that the bird has a nest near Pierre's house. Sure enough, there is a nest at Pierre's house. So Sally, Pierre, and Mitch destroy the egg. The bird gets enraged, kills Pierre, and goes on a destructive rampage. We interrupt this program for an important announcement. Ladies and gentlemen, speaking from Washington, Lieutenant General Considine, United States Air Force. We are faced with a crisis. A crisis for which all the nations of the world, in unprecedented cooperative action, have found, as yet, no solution. Until we do, we shall not rest. We have tried every weapon in the arsenals of the mightiest armies on Earth. They have proven worse than useless. Atomic hydrogen weapons capable of wiping cities, countries off the face of the Earth are completely ineffective against this creature from the skies. Two days ago, all aircraft were grounded. Deprived of its source of food or energy, however the bird survived, the bird began a series of attacks on the ground in a fantastic orgy of destruction never before seen. Nothing has been safe from attack by the bird. Cattle, horses, fields, homes, trains, all manner of transportation. It has become obvious that the bird is attracted by movement. Accordingly, your government and all the governments of the world have declared a state of emergency and instituted martial law. In addition to grounding all aircraft, all surface transportation, cars, trucks, buses, trains, ships at sea, all such traffic must be halted at once. The movement of food and essential supplies will be handled by the armed forces. 
Blackout conditions will be observed from sunset to dawn, every night until further notice. Movement of any sort on the streets or highways during the daylight hours must be held to an absolute minimum and only where it has been authorized as essential. You have just heard General Considine speaking from Washington. Mitch figures out that a Misun gun shooting subatomic particles at the bird's shield will neutralize it, making the bird vulnerable to attack. Mr. Caldwell McAfee, I'm a busy man. I hope this isn't some sort of crackpot wild goose chase. You and me both, General. Well, it's your dime, boy. What is it you want to show me? How to shoot the bird out of the sky. Some new type of weapon? No, with regular guns, bullets, and bombs. Anything you want. McAfee, I told you that I haven't got time to listen. General, this idea of mine may prove to be as phony as a $3 bill, but I still think it's worth a listen. Well, go ahead. Now, I don't care whether that bird came from outer space or Upper Saddle River, New Jersey. It's still made of flesh and blood of some sort and vulnerable to bullets and bombs. If you can get past that antimatter energy screen. Right. That's exactly what I think, what I hope I figured out how to do. I have just invested a dime of my own, boy. Keep talking. Now, this is a blow-up I had made of a bubble chamber photograph. The chamber was bombarded with high-speed particles. Result? A photograph of a trail made by what is known as a Mew Mason. But notice this hole, this gap right here. This gap is one of the most exciting and significant recent discoveries in all science. You probably know about it, Dr. Neumann. Yes, yes, the formation of a temporary masic atom, the Mew Mason with a hydrogen nucleus. Right, but Mew Masons are 210 times heavier than electrons, which means that in a masic atom, the electrons revolve around a nucleus at just a small fraction of the ordinary distance in the normal atom. I know you don't understand all this, General, but stick with me. Now, the basic atom is extremely small, small enough to sift through the electron defenses of the ordinary atom and fuse with its nuclei. Atoms of matter or antimatter. Right, Doc. Now, if this thing of mine works, and we can get close, real close, and bombard that bird's antimatter energy shield with a stream of masic atoms, I think we can destroy that shield. The bird would be defenseless then except for beak, claws, and wings. You could hit it with everything but the kitchen sink. We've got kitchen sinks to spare, son. Do you think you can do it? Well, I kicked around some ideas. I'm not sure they'll work, but it's certainly worth a try. Well, you need... This lab, Dr. Neumann and his staff, Sally here to help with the math, and a blank check for supplies and equipment. It was yours before you finished asking for it. McAfee time is running out. Today, tomorrow, a week from now, maybe. Besides, I'd hate to lose that dime I've got invested in you. Good luck, son. Well, anybody ready for some work? Work or maybe some magic. What we need is a miracle. Here it is. A miracle. A dime's worth a miracle. After several failed attempts, Mitch finally succeeds in building his Mason gun. Easy, son, easy. You did your best. We can't have you killing the patient trying to cure the disease now, can we? A magnificent effort, Mitch, magnificent. 
It's unfortunate it was doomed to failure from the start. Oh, great. Now, if somebody will just deliver the eulogy, the deceased can be safely laid away to rest. What's the matter with you? Are you all nuts or something? Rich, are you all right? Sally, how long has it been since the explosion? About an hour and a half, two hours, I guess. Oh, we're wasting time. Easy, son, easy. Is that bird still in the air? Why, yes. You still want to shoot it down? Well, yes, yes, sure. Well, then, for Pete's sake, let's get with it. General Buzzkirk has had a plane waiting in that field outside of New York ever since we started the experiments. We've got to get the equipment installed on that plane. Mitch, the apparatus didn't work. The experiments failed. Mitch, please lie down in bed. You were hurt in that explosion. <laughs> oh, of course you don't know. The explosion was no accident. I did it on purpose. I used the Masic atom projector. What? Sure, we had the basic wiring all fouled up. It was a simple matter of adjusting the polarity on the main condenser terminals. I figured it out while you two were asleep, set it up right, and tried it. Oh, wait a minute, McAfee. Wait a minute. Are you trying to tell me that that machine of yours works? Sure. What kind of plane has Buskirk got waiting for you? An old uh, stripped-down B-25. Good. Maneuverability instead of speed. Yeah, the whole operation may depend on being able to turn on a dime. Well, then what in blazes are we waiting for? Well, that's what I've been talking about for ten minutes. Get me my pants, will you, General? Oh, Sally, get out of here. They mount the Mison gun in the tail of a B-25 and fly to New York City. The bird is destroying the skyscrapers in New York City. Uh, the bird chases the plane and they fire the Mison gun. The gun works and the bird's shield is neutralized. Then the plane turns around and fires rockets at the bird. The bird is mortally wounded and crashes into the sea. The last scene of the movie is one of the claws sinking into the sea. And that's the end of the movie. Now it's time for some movie trivia. The working title for today's movie was The Mark of the Claw. The producers originally planned to use stop-motion animation created by Ray Harryhausen for the bird. However, due to budgetary limitations, they were forced to use a marionette. It was reported that the marionette of the giant claw monster, made by a model maker in Mexico City, that cost producer San Capsman a mere 50 bucks. The footage of the B-25 taking off to attack the giant bird at the end of the movie was taken from the movie 30 Seconds Over Tokyo. Screenwriter Samuel Newman reused the character name of Dr. Carol Neumann for an entirely different character played by John Carradine in the 1959 movie The Invisible Invaders, which Newman also wrote. Clips and sound effects were used from the day the earth stood still, it came from beneath the sea, and the earth versus the flying saucers. And that's all I have for movie trivia. Now it's time for the Star Trek connection. Everybody knows I'm a big Star Trek fan, and I try to find a Star Trek connection in every movie or TV show I watch. Believe it or not, today's movie does have a Star Trek connection. The Star Trek connection in today's movie is Morgan Jones. He played the lieutenant at the radar station at the beginning of the movie. He also played Colonel Nesvig in the second season episode of the original series, Assignment Earth. And that's it for the Star Trek connection. Here are my comments about today's movie. I watched the 2014 DVD release from Mill Creek Entertainment. It was part of their sci-fi creature classic four movie collection. 
It came with 20 million miles to Earth. It came from the bottom of the sea and Mothra. The picture and sound quality on this DVD are pretty good. There are no bonus features on this DVD. The Giant Claw is a typical 1950s science fiction B-movie. It has all the ingredients you need for this type of movie. You've got your handsome scientist. Check. You've got his love interest. Check. You've got the general and the military. Check. And finally, a giant monster. Check. The cast does an adequate job in their roles in this movie. Jeff Morrow, Maura Cordy, and Morris Ankrum are not new to these type movies. The three of them have starred in several science fiction movies, including This Island Earth, Cronus, The Creature Walks Amongst Us, Tarantula, Earth vs. the Flying Saucers, Rocketship XM, From the Earth to the Moon, Beginning of the End, Red Planet Mars, and Flight to Mars. The story is something different. Normally, the giant creature is the result of exposure to atomic radiation, like in Them, Tarantula, and Godzilla. In this movie, the giant bird is from outer space and surrounded by an antimatter shield. The bird has come to Earth to lay its eggs. The look of the giant bird is totally laughable. Every time I see it, I think of Beaky Buzzard from the Looney Tunes. You know, the bird, the ball-headed bird that goes doo 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 I got it, boss. That's what I think of when I see this bird. It's got a big head with big bug eyes and a beak with crazy teeth and a long neck. The body is round with big feathered wings and giant clawed feet. Hence the name of the movie. To top it off, the bird looks like it has a mohawk or a really bad comb over. The special effects in this movie are horrible. The miniature work is poor at best. There's model, the model airplanes in this movie look like they came straight out of a box of Cracker Jacks. I am not joking. The airplane interior scenes look like they were filmed in somebody's garage. Uh, in this movie, like other 1950s uh, science fiction B-movies, they use a lot of stock footage. I totally get it. You're trying to make a cheap movie and stock footage is relatively cheap. But man, they have so many continuity errors in this movie. It ain't even funny. I mean, in one scene, you have a fighter jet, which is clearly a Lockheed F-80 shooting star. And in the next scene, the same plane is a Republic F-84 Thunderjet. That's crazy. They can't even get to film the match. In another scene, uh, uh, Morrow and Cordy are flying in a Douglas C-54 transport plane when they're going to Washington, D.C., and then they crash. But when it crashes, it's a B-29 Super Fortress. How does how does that work? Um, throughout the movie, they swap Northrop F-89 Scorpions with North American F-86s, and they're just all over the place. There's even a scene where they use a Canadian Avro 110 as an American interceptor. You're probably wondering, how do I know all these airplanes from the 50s? Well, I'm a military brat, and my older brother had pictures of these all over the room. So I remember these jets as when I was a kid. Another thing I noticed about this movie was there's no flight crews in the airplanes. It's like you got an airplane and it's got a pilot, but where's the co-pilot? Where's the flight engineer? Where's the navigator? Where's the crew chief? There's nobody but the pilot. 
I wouldn't want to be on any of those airplanes. Um, at the end of the movie, and here's another crazy thing. At the end of the movie, you got two generals flying an airplane. What two generals are going on a suicide mission in the movie? That's crazy. That's right up there with the president of the United States flying a jet in Independence Day. That just doesn't make any sense at all. And the most craziest thing about this movie is Mitch and Sally throughout the movie are flying airplanes. I'm not getting on an airplane if there's something flying around making airplanes crash. That That's just crazy. Um, Overall, this is a typical 1950s science fiction movie. It's one of those movies that's so bad, it's good. This movie would be a great candidate for Mystery Science Theater 3000. If you haven't seen this movie and you're a science fiction fan, you have to see it once. Just remember going into the movie, this is 74 minutes you ain't never getting back. On a scale from 1 to 10, I'll give the giant claw a solid 3. And those are my comments about the giant claw. That's it for today's podcast. Before I wrap up this week's podcast, I want to thank Rico again for giving me this opportunity to share with all of you another classic science fiction movie. I also want to thank everyone who took the time to listen to me today. I hope you enjoyed it. Rico will be back next week on the podcast with a preview of this fall's TV shows. I'll be back soon with another classic science fiction movie. Until then, everyone take care. This is M5 signing off.